Chapter Four, Part Five of Stones of Venice, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stones of Venice, Volume Two, by John Ruskin. Chapter Four, Saint Mark's, Part Five. The more I have examined the subject, the more dangerous I have found it to dogmatize, respecting the character of the art which is likely at a given period to be most useful to the cause of religion. One great fact first meets me. I cannot answer for the experience of others, but I never yet met with a Christian whose heart was thoroughly set upon the world to come, and, so far as human judgment could pronounce, perfect and right before God, who cared about art at all. I have known several very noble Christian men who loved it intensely, but in them there was always traceable some entanglement of the thoughts with the matters of this world, causing them to fall into strange distresses and doubts, and often leading them into what they themselves would confess to be errors in understanding or even failures in duty. I do not say that these men may not, many of them, be in very deed nobler than those whose conduct is more consistent. They may be more tender in the tone of all their feelings, and farther-sighted in soul, and for that very reason exposed to greater trials and fears, than those whose hardier frame and naturally narrower vision enable them with less effort to give their hands to God and walk with Him. But still, the general fact is indeed so, that I have never known a man who seemed altogether right and calm in faith, who seriously cared about art and when casually moved by it, it is quite impossible to say beforehand by what class of art this impression will on such men be made. Very often it is by a theatrical commonplace, more frequently still by false sentiment. I believe that the four painters who have had, and still have, the most influence, such as it is, on the ordinary Protestant Christian mind, are Carlo Dolci, Guercino, Benjamin West, and John Martin. Raphael, much as he is talked about, is, I believe in very fact, rarely looked at by religious people, much less his master or any of the truly great religious men of old. But a smooth Magdalen of Carlo Dolci with a tear on each cheek, or a Guercino Christ or St. John, or a scripture illustration of West's or a black cloud with a flash of lightning in it of Martin's, rarely fails of being verily, often deeply, felt for the time. There are indeed many very evident reasons for this, the chief one being that, as all truly great religious painters have been hearty Romanists, there are none of their works which do not embody in some portions of them definitely Romanist doctrines. The Protestant mind is instantly struck by these and offended by them, so as to be incapable of entering, or at least rendered indisposed to enter, farther into the heart of the work or to the discovering those deeper characters of it which are not Romanist but Christian, in the everlasting sense and power of Christianity. Thus most Protestants, entering for the first time a paradise of Angelical, would be irrevocably offended by finding that the first person the painter wished them to speak to was St. Dominic, and would retire from such a heaven as speedily as possible, not giving themselves time to discover that, whether dressed in black or white or grey, and by whatever name in the calendar they might be called, the figures that filled that angelic heaven were indeed more saintly and pure and full of love in every feature than any that the human hand ever traced before or since. And thus Protestantism, 
having foolishly sought for the little help it requires at the hand of painting from the men who embodied no catholic doctrine has been reduced to receive it from those who believed neither catholicism nor protestantism but who read the bible in search of the picturesque we thus refuse to regard the painters who passed their lives in prayer but are perfectly ready to be taught by those who spent them in debauchery there is perhaps no more popular protestant picture than salvator's witch of endor of which the subject was chosen by the painter simply because under the names of saul and the sorceress he could paint a captain of banditti and a neapolitan hag the fact seems to be that strength of religious feeling is capable of supplying for itself whatever is wanting in the rudest suggestions of art and will either on the one hand purify what is coarse into inoffensiveness or on the other raise what is feeble into impressiveness probably all art as such is unsatisfactory to it and the effort which it makes to supply the void will be induced rather by association and accident than by the real merit of the work submitted to it the likeness to a beloved friend the correspondence with a habitual conception the freedom from any strange or inoffensive particularity and above all an interesting choice of incident will win admiration for a picture when the noblest efforts of religious imagination would otherwise fail of power how much more when to the quick capacity of emotion is joined a childish trust that the picture does indeed represent a fact it matters little whether the fact be well or ill told the moment we believe the picture to be true we complain little of its being ill-painted let it be considered for a moment whether the child with its coloured print inquiring eagerly and gravely which is joseph and which is benjamin is not more capable of receiving a strong even a sublime impression from the rude symbol which it invests with reality by its own effort than the connoisseur who admires the grouping of the three figures in raphael's telling of the dreams and whether also when the human mind is in right religious tone it has not always this childish power i speak advisedly this power a noble one and possessed more in youth than at any period of after life but always i think restored in a measure by religion of raising into sublimity and reality the rudest symbol which is given to it of accredited truth ever since the period of the renaissance however the truth has not been accredited the painter of religious subject is no longer regarded as the narrator of a fact but as the inventor of an idea we do not severely criticize the manner in which a true history is told but we become harsh investigators of the faults of an invention so that in the modern religious mind the capacity of emotion which renders judgment uncertain is joined with an incredulity which renders it severe and this ignorant emotion joined with ignorant observance of faults is the worst possible temper in which any art can be regarded but more especially sacred art for as religious faith renders emotion facile so also it generally renders expression simple that is to say a truly religious painter will very often be ruder quainter simpler and more faulty in his manner of working than a great irreligious one and it was in this artless utterance and simple acceptance on the part of both the workman and the beholder that all noble schools of art have been cradled it is in them that they must be cradled to the end of time it is impossible to calculate the enormous loss of power in modern days owing to the imperative requirement that art shall be methodical and learned for as long as the constitution of this world remains unaltered there will be more intellect in it than there can be education 
there will be many men capable of just sensation and vivid invention who never will have time to cultivate or polish their natural powers and all unpolished power is in the present state of society lost in other things as well as in the arts but in the arts especially nay in nine cases out of ten people mistake the polish for the power until a man has passed through a course of academy studentship and can draw in an approved manner with french chalk and knows foreshortening and perspective and something of anatomy we do not think he can possibly be an artist what is worse we are very apt to think that we can make him an artist by teaching him anatomy and how to draw with french chalk whereas the real gift in him is utterly independent of all such accomplishments and i believe there are many peasants on every estate and labourers in every town of europe who have imaginative powers of a high order which nevertheless cannot be used for our good because we do not choose to look at anything but what is expressed in a legal and scientific way i believe there is many a village mason who set to carve a series of scripture or any other histories would find many a strange and noble fancy in his head and set it down roughly enough indeed but in a way well worth our having but we are too grand to let him do this or to set up his clumsy work when it is done and accordingly the poor stonemason is kept hewing stones smooth at the corners and we build our church of the smooth square stones and consider ourselves wise i shall pursue this subject farther in another place but i allude to it here in order to meet the objections of those persons who suppose the mosaics of st mark's and others of the period to be utterly barbarous as representations of religious history let it be granted that they are so we are not for that reason to suppose they were ineffective in religious teaching i have above spoken of the whole church as a great book of common prayer the mosaics were its illuminations and the common people of the time were taught their scripture history by means of them more impressively perhaps though far less fully than ours are now by scripture reading they had no other bible and protestants do not often enough consider this could have no other we find it somewhat difficult to furnish our poor with printed bibles consider what the difficulty must have been when they could be given only in manuscript the walls of the church necessarily became the poor man's bible and a picture was more easily read upon the walls than a chapter under this view and considering them merely as the bible pictures of a great nation in its youth i shall finally invite the reader to examine the connection and subjects of these mosaics but in the meantime i have to deprecate the idea of their execution being in any sense barbarous i have conceded too much to modern prejudice in permitting them to be rated as mere childish efforts at coloured portraiture they have characters in them of a very noble kind nor are they by any means devoid of the remains of the science of the later roman empire the character of the features is almost always fine the expression stern and quiet and very solemn the attitudes and draperies always majestic in the single figures and in those of the groups which are not in violent action while the bright colouring and disregard of chiaroscuro cannot be regarded as imperfections since they are the only means by which the figures could be rendered clearly intelligible in the distance and darkness of the vaulting so far am i from considering them barbarous that i believe of all works of religious art whatsoever these and such as these have been the most effective they stand exactly midway between the debased manufacture of wooden and waxen images which is the support of romanist idolatry all over the world and the great art which leads the mind away from the religious subject to the art itself 
respecting neither of these branches of human skill is there nor can there be any question the manufacture of puppets however influential on the romanist mind of europe is certainly not deserving of consideration as one of the fine arts it matters literally nothing to a romanist what the image he worships is like take the vilest doll that is screwed together in a cheap toy shop trust it to the keeping of a large family of children let it be beaten about the house by them till it is reduced to a shapeless block then dress it in a satin frock and declare it to have fallen from heaven and it will satisfactorily answer all romanist purposes idolatry it cannot be too often repeated is no encourager of the fine arts but on the other hand the highest branches of the fine arts are no encouragers either of idolatry or of religion no picture of leonardo's or raphael's no statue of michelangelo's has ever been worshipped except by accident carelessly regarded and by ignorant persons there is less to attract in them than in commoner works carefully regarded and by intelligent persons they instantly divert the mind from their subject to their art so that admiration takes the place of devotion i do not say that the madonna di san sisto the madonna del cardellino and such others have not had considerable religious influence on certain minds but i say that on the mass of the people of europe they have had none whatever while by far the greater number of the most celebrated statues and pictures are never regarded with any other feelings than those of admiration of human beauty or reverence for human skill effective religious art therefore has always lain and i believe must always lie between the two extremes of barbarous idol fashioning on one side and magnificent craftsmanship on the other it consists partly in missal painting and such book illustrations as since the invention of printing have taken its place partly in glass painting partly in rude sculpture on the outsides of buildings partly in mosaics and partly in the frescoes and tempera pictures which in the fourteenth century formed the link between this powerful because imperfect religious art and the impotent perfection which succeeded it but of all these branches the most important are the inlaying and mosaic of the twelfth and thirteenth centuries represented in a central manner by these mosaics of st mark's missal painting could not from its minuteness produce the same sublime impressions and frequently merged itself in mere ornamentation of the page modern book illustration has been so little skilful as hardly to be worth naming sculpture though in some positions it becomes of great importance has always a tendency to lose itself in architectural effect and was probably seldom deciphered in all its parts by the common people still less the traditions annealed in the purple burning of the painted window finally tempera pictures and frescoes were often of limited size or of feeble colour but the great mosaics of the twelfth and thirteenth centuries covered the walls and roofs of the churches with inevitable lustre they could not be ignored or escaped from their size rendered them majestic their distance mysterious their colour attractive they did not pass into confused or inferior decorations neither were they adorned with any evidences of skill or science such as might withdraw the attention from their subjects they were before the eyes of the devotee at every interval of his worship vast shadowings forth of scenes to whose realization he looked forward or of spirits whose presence he invoked 
and the man must be little capable of receiving a religious impression of any kind who to this day does not acknowledge some feeling of awe as he looks up at the pale countenances and ghastly forms which haunt the dark roofs of the baptisteries of parma and florence or remains altogether untouched by the majesty of the colossal images of apostles and of him who sent apostles that look down from the darkening gold of the domes of venice and pisa i shall in a future portion of this work endeavour to discover what probabilities there are of our being able to use this kind of art in modern churches but at present it remains for us to follow out the connection of the subjects represented in st mark's so as to fulfil our immediate object and form an adequate conception of the feelings of its builders and of its uses to those for whom it was built now there is one circumstance to which i must in the outset direct the reader's special attention as forming a notable distinction between ancient and modern days our eyes are now familiar and wearied with writing and if an inscription is put upon a building unless it be large and clear it is ten to one whether we ever trouble ourselves to decipher it but the old architect was sure of readers he knew that every one would be glad to decipher all that he wrote that they would rejoice in possessing the vaulted leaves of his stone manuscript and that the more he gave them the more grateful would the people be we must take some pains therefore when we enter st mark's to read all that is inscribed or we shall not penetrate into the feeling either of the builder or of his times a large atrium or portico is attached to two sides of the church a space which was specially reserved for unbaptized persons and new converts it was thought right that before their baptism these persons should be led to contemplate the great facts of the old testament history the history of the fall of man and of the lives of patriarchs up to the period of the covenant by moses the order of the subjects in this series being very nearly the same as in many northern churches but significantly closing with the fall of the manor in order to mark to the catechumen the insufficiency of the mosaic covenant for salvation our fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead and to turn his thoughts to the true bread of which that manna was the type then when after his baptism he was permitted to enter the church over its main entrance he saw on looking back a mosaic of christ enthroned with the virgin on one side and st mark on the other in attitudes of adoration christ is represented as holding a book open upon his knee on which is written i am the door by me if any man enter in he shall be saved on the red marble moulding which surrounds the mosaic is written i am the gate of life let those who are mine enter by me above on the red marble fillet which forms the cornice of the west end of the church is written with reference to the figure of christ below who he was and from whom he came and at what price he redeemed thee and why he made thee and gave thee all things do thou consider now observe this was not to be seen and read only by the catechumen when he first entered the church every one who at any time entered was supposed to look back and to read this writing their daily entrance into the church was thus made a daily memorial of their first entrance into the spiritual church and we shall find that the rest of the book which was opened for them upon its walls continually led them in the same manner to regard the visible temple as in every part a type of the invisible church of god 
therefore the mosaic of the first dome which is over the head of the spectator as soon as he has entered by the great door that door being the type of baptism represents the effusion of the holy spirit as the first consequence and seal of the entrance into the church of god in the centre of the cupola is the dove enthroned in the greek manner as the lamb is enthroned when the divinity of the second and third persons is to be insisted upon together with their peculiar offices from the central symbol of the holy spirit twelve streams of fire descend upon the heads of the twelve apostles who are represented standing around the dome and below them between the windows which are pierced in its walls are represented by groups of two figures for each separate people the various nations who heard the apostles speak at pentecost every man in his own tongue finally on the vaults at the four angles which support the cupola are pictured four angels each bearing a tablet upon the end of a rod in his hand on each of the tablets of the three first angels is inscribed the word holy on that of the fourth is written lord and the beginning of the hymn being thus put into the mouths of the four angels the words of it are continued around the border of the dome uniting praise to god for the gift of the spirit with welcome to the redeemed soul received into his church holy 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 lord god of sabaoth heaven and earth are full of thy glory hosanna in the highest blessed is he that cometh in the name of the lord and observe in this writing that the convert is required to regard the outpouring of the holy spirit especially as a work of sanctification it is the holiness of god manifested in the giving of his spirit to sanctify those who had become his children which the four angels celebrate in their ceaseless praise and it is on account of this holiness that the heaven and earth are said to be full of his glory after thus hearing praise rendered to god by the angels for the salvation of the newly entered soul it was thought fittest that the worshipper should be led to contemplate in the most comprehensive forms possible the past evidence and the future hopes of christianity as summed up in three facts without assurance of which all faith is vain namely that christ died that he rose again and that he ascended into heaven there to prepare a place for his elect on the vault between the first and second cupolas are represented the crucifixion and resurrection of christ with the usual series of intermediate scenes the treason of judas the judgment of pilate the crowning with thorns the descent into hades the visit of the women to the sepulchre and the apparition to mary magdalene the second cupola itself which is the central and principal one of the church is entirely occupied by the subject of the ascension at the highest point of it christ is represented as rising into the blue heaven borne up by four angels and throned upon a rainbow the type of reconciliation beneath him the twelve apostles are seen upon the mount of olives with the madonna and in the midst of them the two men in white apparel who appeared at the moment of the ascension above whom as uttered by them are inscribed the words ye men of galilee why stand ye gazing up into heaven this christ the son of god as he is taken from you shall so come the arbiter of the earth trusted to do judgment and justice beneath the circle of the apostles between the windows of the cupola are represented the christian virtues as sequent upon the crucifixion of the flesh and the spiritual ascension together with christ 
beneath them on the vaults which support the angles of the cupola are placed the four evangelists because on their evidence our assurance of the fact of the ascension rests and finally beneath their feet as symbols of sweetness and fullness of the gospel which they declared are represented the four rivers of paradise pison gihon tigris and euphrates the third cupola that over the altar represents the witness of the old testament to christ showing him enthroned in its centre and surrounded by the patriarchs and prophets but this dome was little seen by the people their contemplation was intended to be chiefly drawn to that of the centre of the church and thus the mind of the worshipper was at once fixed on the main groundwork and hope of christianity christ is risen and christ shall come if he had time to explore the minor lateral chapels and cupolas he could find in them the whole series of new testament history the events of the life of christ and the apostolic miracles in their order and finally the scenery of the book of revelation but if he only entered as often the common people do to this hour snatching a few moments before beginning the labour of the day to offer up an ejaculatory prayer and advanced but from the main entrance as far as the altar screen all the splendour of the glittering nave and variegated dome if they smote upon his heart as they might often in strange contrast with his reed cabin among the shallows of the lagoon smote on it only that they might proclaim the two great messages christ is risen and christ shall come daily as the white cupolas rose like wreaths of sea-foam in the dawn while the shadowy campanile and frowning palace were still withdrawn into the night they rose with the easter voice of triumph christ is risen and daily as they looked down upon the tumult of the people deepening and eddying in the wide square that opened from their feet to the sea they uttered above them the sentence of warning christ shall come and this thought may surely dispose the reader to look with some change of temper upon the gorgeous building and wild blazonry of that shrine of st mark's he now perceives that it was in the hearts of the old venetian people far more than a place of worship it was at once a type of the redeemed church of god and a scroll for the written word of god it was to be to them both an image of the bride all glorious within her clothing of wrought gold and the actual table of the law and the testimony written within and without and whether honoured as the church or as the bible was it not fitting that neither the gold nor the crystal should be spared in the adornment of it that as the symbol of the bride the building of the wall thereof should be of jasper and the foundations of it garnished with all manner of precious stones and that as the channel of the word that triumphant utterance of the psalmist should be true of it i have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches and shall we not look with changed temper down the long perspective of st mark's place towards the sevenfold gates and glowing domes of its temple when we know with what solemn purpose the shafts of it were lifted above the pavement of the populous square men met there from all countries of the earth for traffic or for pleasure but above the crowd swaying forever to and fro in the restlessness of avarice or first of delight was seen perpetually the glory of the temple attesting to them whether they would hear or whether they would forbear that there was one treasure which the merchantman might buy without a price 
and one delight better than all others in the word and the statutes of God. Not in the wantonness of wealth, not in vain ministry to the desire of the eyes or the pride of life, were those marbles hewn into transparent strength, and those arches arrayed in the colours of the iris. There is a message written in the dyes of them, that once was written in blood, and a sound in the echoes of their vaults, that one day shall fill the vault of heaven. He shall return, to do judgment and justice. The strength of Venice was given her so long as she remembered this. Her destruction found her when she had forgotten this and it found her irrevocably because she forgot it without excuse never had a city a more glorious bible among the nations of the north a rude and shadowy sculpture filled their temples with confused and hardly legible imagery but for her the skill and the treasures of the east had gilded every letter and illumined every page till the book temple shone from afar off like the star of the magi in other cities, the meetings of the people were often in places withdrawn from religious association, subject to violence and to change, and on the grass of the dangerous rampart and in the dust of the troubled street there were deeds done and counsels taken, which, if we cannot justify, we may sometimes forgive. But the sins of Venice, whether in her palace or in her piazza, were done with the Bible at her right hand. The walls on which its testimony was written were separated but by a few inches of marble from those which guarded the secrets of her councils or confined the victims of her policy. And when in her last hours she threw off all shame and all restraint, and the great square of the city became filled with the madness of the whole earth, be it remembered how much her sin was greater because it was done in the face of the house of God, burning with the letters of his law mountebank and masker laughed their laugh and went their way and a silence has followed them not unforetold for amidst them all through century after century of gathering vanity and festering guilt that white dome of st mark's had uttered in the dead ear of venice know thou that for all these things god will bring thee into judgment End of chapter 4, part 5